Hi, it's G3, and today, Weiss's CIO and president, Jordi Visser, is on the other side of the mic to provide his overall assessment on where things stand in the markets. Listeners of this podcast and those who follow Jordi on Twitter or through his webinars know that he has been constructive on equities and crypto for some time. But does he still hold those views based upon what he's seeing? Or has he changed his tune? Well, please stay tuned to find out. And of course, as always, please check important disclosures at the end of the episode. And with that, I welcome you. All right, we are recording. It's the summer, it's August. You're back, Jordy. Yeah, it's so nice outside. Really enjoy this weather over Maine. <laughs> yes. Nothing like 95 and humid to make you feel great. Want to get up out of bed and attack the day. Yes, this is the kind of weather that keeps me away from New Orleans as, as often as I'd probably want to be there for the food. All right. Well, let's attack the markets today. It's been about a month since we spoke about the state of the markets on this podcast. At that time, you conceded that we may not finish the year higher, but you reiterated your bullish views and reintroduced the concept of deflation, which many people at the time had not even thought about in quite some time. As you know, you have been at least partially vindicated as stocks and bonds have rallied very strongly. Most commodities have fallen sharply. So as we sit here today, Jordy, how are you feeling about where we are and where we're headed. So I'm going to say this first in a diplomatic way to be respectful of a lot of people which believe this is a quote-unquote another bear market rally. Much more confident than I've been at any time this year. Part of figuring out what's gone on is really to think about what's changed. And I look at markets not from where earnings are going to be, from where the economy is going to be necessarily, Again, it's a framework that has to do with handicapping, and a lot has changed in terms of the markets, the way assets have moved, and some of it to me has definitely changed the way people should be thinking about the second half of the year, and the arguments I continue to hear right now are still around the same stories that I heard in the beginning. So I'm going to just remind people, so on June 13th, we made a peak in gas at the pump. This entire year, one of the major themes was gas at the pump was going higher. It obviously directly leads into inflation, which means it directly has an impact on the Fed. Anyone who refuses to admit that is being stubborn and not accepting the fact that as of the time we come in here, gas at the pump has gone from over $5 to $4.16 as of this morning. And the futures are implying another 25 to 50 cent decline in the coming weeks if gas futures stay at where they are. So you can sit there and argue, but the fact is June 13th was the peak in gas at the pump. Secondly, two-year rates in the U.S., which had continually been moving higher and dragging fears down as the Fed was being aggressive, not only in raising rates or telling the market how much they were going to raise, but as I've brought up in the past, in the period of 1994, when the Fed was last aggressively raising rates, when two-year rates peaked, stocks started to rally and they rallied aggressively from that point. So the fact that two-year rates peaked on June 14th, one day after gas at the pump peaked, that is a fact. That is not some assumption. June 15th, 
the Fed raised 75 basis points, taking their Fed rate hikes up to 75. At the time, 100 was built in right after that for the next month. And we did 75 again. So the pace of Fed rate hikes at this point, where we had fears of 100, now we have slightly more than 50 built into September, which means regardless of this quote-unquote Fed pivot or whatever has happened in July, we've seen the worst of the Fed rate hikes almost assuredly. Because gas at the pump is falling, we're going to see some easing in inflationary pressures at a minimum. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with where the market is on this. But something, again, has changed where the rhetoric has probably reached a peak, and that's brought rates fall down. Now, on June 16th, one day, so you've had those three days in a row, the S&P bottom, and it's gone higher. Now, I did a lot of end of the quarter calls with CIOs, and the pushback that I got on being positive was that, yes, maybe those things are true. Maybe we have seen the peak in inflation and rates, and maybe oil is starting to come down and commodities have fallen, but now the earnings are going to collapse, and it's now the earnings recession. And we just went through earnings, and the earnings have been better than expected. There is no collapse in earnings. It's not representative of a quote-unquote recession. So when you combine all that and then you add in the fact the sentiment's gotten worse, and you put it all together, and I look at what the markets have done, I'm much more confident because the narratives of the market have not adjusted. The positioning of the market has not significantly adjusted. And I think those things were what was keeping the market in check. And when I see the prime brokerage numbers for hedge fund positions. And I listen to how depressed people are in the hedge fund industry with leverage at very low levels. I think the second half of the year, people are underestimating the impact that buybacks, that CTA repositioning, that hedge fund repositioning, that as long as we don't have a earnings recession and as long as these things are in check, I think there's going to be buyers underneath and the market is going to continue to move higher. How do you square that with the July ISM which showed some signs of emerging weakness. Inventories are coming in at 38-year highs. New orders are slumping. How do you square your view with where ISM is potentially headed? ISM at the end of the day ends up being somewhat based on uncertainty. It's a survey. It's not representative of actual hiring We've still hiring 300,000 people a month. So the ism coming down is something we've talked about on this podcast. I talked about the fact that you can't have stocks and bonds both falling like they did in the first half of the year and consumer net worth go down and not see it. You can't have gas at the pump go up as much as it is. You can't have the Fed. Right now, the problem is there's a lot of uncertainty that still remains. Markets and the ism, stocks go up when the ism bottoms. Now, we haven't hit an ism bottom yet. And I don't mean the headline number. I mean the fact that new orders have come down sharply, not just in the U.S., but across the globe. Employment is below 50. The inventory numbers are high, which should be good for inflation. Not necessarily good for growth, but it should be good for inflation coming down. At the same time, you have supplier delivery times, which have come down. And inventories and supplier delivery times are 40% of the ism. So you have 40%, which is below 50, that's employment and new orders. And then you have 60%, which is above 50. You have production, which is slightly above. But then you have inventories and supplier delivery times, which are really the bulk of why we're above 50. So technically, the inflationary stuff, which is supplier delivery times and really inflation, is sitting up at the higher end. But going forward, I expect both of those to come down and I expect new orders and employment to get better. And as that occurs it will justify stocks actually going higher. Even if we get 
And as you stated in your webinar, which you titled it, Bad Sentiment, Good Opportunity. And by the way, this is one of those webinars you do where the title does a lot of the work for you. I mean, it was like, okay, I get it. This is what Jordy thinks. Even if the sentiment gets worse, that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't change your view so long as earnings hold up and the key indicators that you look at hold up, you're going to remain intact with your constructive view. Even if earnings were to get worse, the question really comes in, how much is the market already discounted? Again, I've mentioned this on this podcast a lot, but the first six months of the year were one of the worst years in the last 80 for the market. Basically ever. Yeah, you had already discounted a recession. So a recession in earnings is not really the point. So far, we haven't seen earnings contract, which means to have this kind of a fall, the only thing that's happened is multiples have compressed. The question is how much of this was related to a temporary situation. And I say temporary because inflation at the level that it is, is temporary. It's coming back down. And for anyone who wants to argue that, I hear now it's it's rents, it's wages. This is a major problem. All of the leading indicators for that stuff are down. And even if those things stay elevated for a period of time, the fact that commodities have come down so sharply and gas at the pump has come down, you're going to see a lot of things come down, which means the one correlation nature of inflation is going down. So the webinar was meant to highlight that when you have surveys at the levels and the depths of negativity as they are, all it takes, and I think the easiest way to do it, I was hiking in New Jersey this weekend, and obviously it hasn't rained much. This is my first hiking weekend in New Jersey since I came back from Maine, and everything was just dry. And as you come out, they've got the bear, and it says, what's the fire risk today? And it says very high. The same thing goes for a rally in the market. Right now, we've discounted so much negative news that you see what happens when the Fed quote unquote pivots. People can disagree that they didn't actually do anything and the Fed can come out and say, we didn't pivot. The reality is they are pivoting, meaning the extent of the rate hikes, the market only has built in 60 basis points or less for September. No one says they're going to stop raising rates, but the question is how much did the market discount? So this webinar was important. I did it in Maine mainly because I thought there was a lot of stuff that had come out and I wanted to make sure it came out before the Fed decision. And then when the Fed decision came out, that combustible situation actually hit. Now the risk for people is they want to fade this. They want to blame it on the quietness of the summer. All of that stuff is true, but you're starting to get FOMO. The fear of missing out is starting to enter people's minds because it's not just stocks. It's credit as well. It's the bond market as well. And commodities have gone down. We've changed a lot of things. And for everything to go back to where it was in the first half, I think you're going to need to either see a significant recession, which I do not expect. Or you're going to need to see the same pressure points choking on the market from inflation, from the Fed, from gas at the pump. And I, there's no indication that that's Here, coming. Here's my one problem with that podcast you did, which is you did it in Maine, which I'm sure you would agree. Maine in the summer is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. How could you not be positive when you're doing your analysis from Maine? Question for you, if you had written or if you had prepared for and done that webinar in 98 degree sweltering New York City heat, do you think you would have come out as constructive 
about the markets. Wow, you're really questioning my authenticity in, in doing these webinars. Environmental bias, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely not. It would have been exactly the same. It probably would have just been more angry in terms of the webinar. But the reason I, again, I do these because I do have conversations with most of our CIOs on a fairly regular basis. And I probably did, I don't know, 10 to 20 during the month of June, just because again, at the end of the quarter. So these updates that I do, where I'll go through the 25 to 30 most important charts that I see and what I'm looking at and some of the stuff, it was important to do it there. In terms of the main stuff, rather than describe it the way it is, I just want to make sure, and I'm sure this will become a podcast at some point. I've now spent about 70 days in Maine this year. I go up there for health reasons, meaning I'm a big believer that this city is loaded not just with humidity, but toxins. And I am very fixated on longevity for all the things that I, we talk about in this podcast, the rabbit hole learning of Web 3.0, the markets in general, the experience I go through. There's no topic I've spent more time on in the last 40 years of my life than longevity and trying to stay on top of how the human body works and how you can stay young, keep thinking sharply at times. Maine is a representation, as far as I'm concerned, of a place that when you go to, your stress level goes down, you live a simpler life. I don't like it as much in the summertime because most of this industry takes their kids up to camp there, so it's very busy. <laughs> but come September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, I go up there as much as I possibly can. So Maine, will, I'm sure, will be a topic on a podcast when we start getting into longevity. And just to be clear, you are not being paid by the Tourism Agency of Maine and have in no way a financial interest. No, I have a lot of friends up there who, as they listen to this podcast, will be very happy for the shout out. It's a funny thing with Mainers. The state's built on tourism, but I don't think any of them are too happy when there's a lot of tourists. So, Right. And let's just call it as it is, particularly New York tourists, right? Particularly, yes. <laughs> me included. All right. Well, let's try to help people between now and when they will plan those trips to Maine. In the morning meeting, you have talked a lot about buybacks, a lot about low summer liquidity. You've already mentioned that. And you've noted that earnings have generally held up pretty well. At the same time, and as you and I have talked about quite a bit, we've had our second negative quarterly GDP print. So I know this is like a hanging curveball of a question for you, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I know people are thinking about it, as do you. Are we in a recession? Are we headed into one? What's your take on whether or not we can avoid one? Okay. I don't know if I've ever said this on this podcast, but now that we've had two negative quarters of GDP, I just want to make sure everyone who's listening to this, who picks up the paper and sees we're in a recession, next time you end up where someone says something like that, there is actually no definition for it. So everybody's opinion on this is different. I've mentioned the fact that when I was a young kid, my father said to me when I went to school, whatever they're telling you is not a fact. It's an opinion. And if you went to school in a different country, you'd have different history. If the only thing you should believe is fact is math. And that was it. And that's what I grew up. There's a cynicism involved in it, but I think it's helped me with markets because when you say there's a recession, we've created... <laughs> 2 million plus jobs already this year. We're probably at this pace, if we continue, going to do 3 to 4 million this year. There's no such thing as a recession in my history books of looking at markets and analytics that involves a recession. The most famous one is that if I ask people, well, what happened in 2000, 2001, 2002? And I ask all market participants when they think the stock market fell in 2000, almost to a person, they'll say, well, it peaked in March and then it went down the entire year bounce a little bit, then it went down, but it was a horrible year in 2000. 
The S&P 500 basically peaked in September. It was up 5% for the year in 2000. The NASDAQ had gone down, so we had a tech bubble unwind. There was no recession that year. The reason there was no recession that year is not just because stocks didn't fall. It was because we created 2 million jobs in 2000. Now, from September to December, the S&P fell 18%. And then the following year, recession started. We started having job losses. The reason I bring that up for this conversation, we are not in a recession right now. We might be five months from now. And if we are, the equity market's going to go down because that means we're not at the bottom of ISM. That means we haven't hit the inflection point for earnings where things are really bad. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we're going to have a recession next year either because I think this has been driven by energy prices and uncertainty over energy and uncertainty over the Fed. And I've always said that the two most important factors for monetary policy and for decision-making are gas at the pump or oil prices and monetary policy from the Fed, not the ECB, not the Bank of China, but from the Fed. And both of those were completely uncertain this year. And now we have much more certainty today than we did any time this year. So in theory, what we have already experienced could be the quote unquote recession and markets have anticipated that and started trading up as market participants see gas prices going down greater certainty over the Fed and the like. And that brings me to the next question I have for you. Clearly, the aggressiveness of the Fed's rhetoric was something that caught a lot of people off guard, including you. But now that we seem to have a greater certainty as to the Fed's pathway, that probably is now significantly less of a risk, less of a surprise as we go deeper into the second half of the year. What is the highest probability of surprise for Q3 and Q4 as you look at things today? I think inflation in the central banks no longer should be on the, the top five of surprises. And again, I can hear all the inflationistas screaming and saying, wrong, we haven't even hit peak yet. I will say it's energy prices. If anything has happened this year, which has made me more constructive on what's going to happen going forward, I came into this year saying on the podcast that we did for the Outlook that inflation would be stubbornly high for the foreseeable future, that the labor shortage would be an issue, and that oil prices would continue to go higher. I actually, in private conversations, was talking about oil above 300 up to 500 as a necessity because of the lack of investment that had been done, driven mainly by ESG over the last three to four years, being caught up in a higher nominal GDP world. That was the podcast at the beginning of the year. Then Russia invaded Ukraine, which helped oil initially go higher, but it peaked very quickly after that. And even though it only recently fell a lot, I think the energy movement for this year may have changed that picture a little bit. In terms of the Fed, the reason I'm not worried about inflation in the Fed is because they raised rates aggressively in a way that has taken investment grade deals and mortgage rates up to the highest level in 12 years. So nobody expected that. And we did it. So you're going to have a slowdown in the economy, which we had. And they're starting QT now. Money supply is not growing. So we basically eradicated what I thought would be a four-year period of Fed being behind the curve, keeping nominal GDP at high levels, which would directly keep the pressure on the lack of supply and energy. What I think has happened with Russia invading Ukraine, it may have created a peak in energy. And I've been one of the bulls on energy, but I think there is a possibility that energy's peak. So for the second half of the year, for what's going to happen, 
I think it matters what crude does. And I think it matters what crude does this month. And I say this month because technically we've gone all the way back down to the 200-day moving average on both WTI and Brent. We've seen gas at the pump already come down. If oil prices take another leg lower here during the summertime and you get down into the 80s, I think that is going to signal at a minimum a top for oil is in for at least the rest of the year. And most likely it'll be difficult to switch it up because I don't see an acceleration of growth coming. If oil's down, the stock market to me is going to go higher because inflation will be coming down. And this will be a reminder of what I said on the webinar and I showed the charts. The two inflation peaks in the 1974 to 1982 period, when we hit the peak of year-over-year inflation, which is driven by energy prices, stocks rallied dramatically. And so far, that relationship has held up this time. And is the fact that August is the sort of peak of summer driving season also a factor in your analysis? It is, but this has more to do with, and the reason I'm saying the biggest possibility for risk, and it's for both directions. I think the only way stocks will see another leg lower, meaning below the lows that we went through, I think it's going to take an energy situation. I don't think it's coming from the Fed. I think the Russia-Ukraine situation going into the wintertime creates uncertainty. And so you've got natural gas or gas futures in Europe up near the highs of the year. So oils come down, but the gas futures are anticipating that it's going to be a problem. German power prices are up at the highs. The reason I say this situation with Russia-Ukraine actually may put a long-term peak in energy is very similar to COVID. We've talked on this podcast and we'll do one on longevity because I think what COVID did was a Manhattan Project type impact to the longevity side. It accelerated messenger RNA. It allowed us to do things and get everyone to work together across the globe on solving a problem. I think energy has reached the same thing because I think when Russia invaded Ukraine, Europe had to look and think, oh my gosh, we got off of nuclear. We're sitting on the situation completely dependent on Russia, which we understood, but now they did something that was really unthinkable to us, or at least on the lower probabilities. We have to have a new plan. It's got to involve less demand for fossil fuels, and it has to come up with solutions much quicker. So I think it has accelerated the need for solutions by moving the price higher in gas over there. And so I think in a weird way, what has happened this year has taken the pressure off the energy supply situation much more than energy people think. That's just my own opinion. I'm not an energy expert, but I do think something changed dramatically, which is both going to speed up the innovation cycle there, but at the same time is making people focus on getting off of fossil fuels even at a faster pace than they were beforehand. All right. Well, to just end on a sunnier note. This has been a sunny podcast. I mean, I'm pretty optimistic on things. So I know. So I'm leaning into that, leaning into the fact that this is the summer People maybe will give us a little bit more leeway to do this. And it is an important topic that I'm about to raise. So while sunny, it is important. According to the standings, the Yankees and the Dodgers are the two best teams in baseball, not your beloved Mets. However, your beloved Mets are, in fact, the hottest team in baseball. And now they have one of their key pitchers coming off of the DL. So I want to have the benefit of your handicapping skills here as we conclude to get your assessment of the odds of a subway series happening, because I think that would be great for New York City. I think it would be great for baseball. And dare I say, it would be great for America. Except for the fact that 
it'll be in November and it's going to be extremely cold. Except for that fact. (laughs) Yeah. Well, post the trade line, the top four teams in terms of odds in Vegas, which I heard yesterday, it's the Yankees, Dodgers, Astros, and Mets in that order. So it's a good chance. And as I think I've said on this podcast, I know I've said to you personally, I was at every one of the Subway Series games in 2000. So I hope it happens. I think there's a good chance, assuming the Mets pitchers don't get injured. I think they've got uh, a really good chance to face the Yankees in the World Series, and it'll be great for New York. I agree. Give me a number, probability number. 20% chance. 20% chance. Okay, I'm going to go higher than that, and I think we're going to do an episode on it when it happens. Beautiful. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Jordy. Thanks, G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.